This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm sitting with uh, Kevin Hood Gary, who has written a wonderful and timely book called Why Border Matters Education, Leisure, and the Quest for a Meaningful Life, a book that was published in 2022 by Cambridge, I believe. And um, Kevin Hood Gary teaches at Valparaiso University in uh, Indiana. And he teaches in the departments of education, theology, and the honors program. So welcome, Kevin. And um, please uh, tell us about your book uh, and why you decided to write such a timely book. Um, Please. Yes, uh, thank you. It was wonderful to be with you. Um, So I, you know, I think... The question, uh, the study of boredom is personal. I grew up uh, in a family. We moved every three to four years. And so was confronted with boredom as a kid um, in a military family, arriving at a new place and having to figure out what what to do or how to spend my time. Um, And then in my studies, I I gravitated to philosophy and theology, uh, especially to Kierkegaard. And um, he's, he's written a lot about the phenomena of boredom and I think just it was just a powerful diagnosis of like, wow, he's actually naming my experience. Um, um, one critic said, well, "Wait a minute, people aren't bored. We have all these ways of avoiding boredom." And I think that's the I think that's the key thing is is um, there is boredom, and we've gotten really good at avoiding it. Walker Percy describes modern life as a sophisticated boredom avoidance scheme, and so um, really fascinated by how we avoid boredom. Um, you know, studied uh, philosophy of education as well as theology and was a high school teacher. And uh, as a teacher, you're contending with boredom and, and trying to keep that that elephant out of the room. Um, and in doing that, you might be successful at, at keeping students stimulated, and engaged. But um, it, it it comes at the cost of, of them staying at a kind of a superficial level. And so I'm really interested in the problem within schools, but beyond schools, um, boredom and boredom avoidance, as I got to study in, in psychology, um, is is really quite pervasive. Uh, and it's it's causally correlated with several troubling behaviors. Um, when we're bored or avoiding boredom, we eat too much, we drink too much. Gambling is, is linked to boredom. Um, we spend too much, we buy things we don't need, uh, uh, prompted by boredom. Just thinking about our economy is constantly trying to generate um, the, the phenomena or the experience of boredom so that we need to upgrade uh, our phones, our computers, our, our, our countertops and our kitchens. And so it, it just seems like this, this problem that is, is it requires an interdisciplinary uh, analysis, which I'm drawn to having studied in, in undergrad political philosophy, theology, philosophy of education. 
And so it, it just lends itself to bringing in a variety of different disciplines um, and is important uh, and significant. And, and I would say it's, it's an enduring problem. It's something that human beings have, have struggled with across millennia. Uh, it's been it's been diagnosed or labeled and given different uh, categories for understanding it. But I think the the the, the, the experience itself, the fundamental experience of, of feeling understimulated and restless and looking for some kind of meaningful engagement is part of the struggle to be a human being and to and to live well. When I would share with with friends and acquaintances that I'm writing a book on boredom, the the universal response I would receive almost almost to, you know to, to a person would be, wow, that sounds really interesting. Which I always found amusing, given that boredom is is one way to define it is as a state of disinterest. And so, the fact that we're interested in this, I think, speaks to our our just our interest in, in flourishing. And if we're living lives that are are characterized by boredom, or we find ourselves in in boring work situations or relationships, um, we're not flourishing as human beings. So it's a topic that just brings together a lot of different areas of study. Um, and in the book, uh, what I'm trying to do is do two things. Uh, it's kind of two parts. The part one is the problem of boredom, understanding boredom. And so drawing on psychology and philosophy, especially uh, Heidegger, for sort of naming this this problem. And then in part two, um, looking at um, what's, the, what's the better or best way to contend with boredom? How do we contend with it wisely? And, and that's where I'm talking about the cultivation of leisure. And, and not leisure in the sense of going on a vacation, but leisure uh, as a way of engaging uh, with our world uh, in a more receptive, attentive way, uh, the bored mind tends to be um, prone to distraction and 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 not sitting with one thing. And to enter into a state of leisure is to is to be able to cultivate a, a kind of a deeper kind of attention. And so that's that's part two. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but that's the basic structure of the book: boredom and then and then leisure, um, and then trying to to look at some some directives for how we cultivate meaningful leisure. And of course, with leisure drawing on, on Aristotle, but but others as well. Um, I'm um, in a in a room here, and it may have gone dark, but, but my auto works. I'm at a hotel. So pardon the, the lights going off here, Adrian. So I'll pause there and see if you have any, any follow-up questions. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I found your book fascinating because, uh, uh, you know, it is a somewhat of a hot topic the, to, to diagnose the culture of distraction and uh, that we all, but you, you go very deeply back into the tradition and bring to bear a variety of, of sources to understand uh to understand this um just as an observation right and it will get to the issue of leisure which with you 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 retrieve this wonderful tradition uh, of leisure uh to as as a counterbalance and or as a solution to the the culture of boredom if if i may say so uh, but it's interesting i i i it i looked up the word uh, English word otios, right, which comes from the Latin otium, right, which is the name for leisure, right, otium. And otios in English and in other languages means basically uh, not doing anything, a, a type of uh, of uh, laziness, right? It's, so it's interesting that it acquired a very negative term in in our in 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 the culture of what we call business or in latin negotium non-leisure right yeah. so we came to 
I I idolize and idealize business negotium, mm-hmm. and and really uh, look down on on leisure on otium. Uh, yeah. So how it's uh, how did we get here? How uh, if we if you wanna just mm-hmm. point to a few of these cultural philosophical changes that got us to this to the point where we are. Right. And I think we're maybe further down because I think we move from the culture of negotium of business to a culture of distraction where we pursue yeah. even more than just business. We look for distraction. So please, how do you, did we get yeah. here? Can you and in yeah. the book you, it's very clear you trace that history of mentality. Please. Yeah, well, the word school, you know, from scola, meaning leisure, you know, this idea that schools are, are, are places where leisure is cultivated. And, and yet schools, you know, especially middle school, high school students overwhelmingly find school boring. And so something is amiss there, too. And just the, the, the institutions of school where we're, we're the aim or at least the historical aim was to cultivate leisure and student instead students are are feeling quite quite the work and experience to be quite tedious. How did we get there? You know, I was reading um, Beyond Good and Evil. Um, uh, Nietzsche describes, um, he said, the English, um, you know, created uh, or, or designed the Sabbath to be so tedious and boring that people just couldn't wait to get back to work. And so that's one I thought I was an interesting take on it. Um, I think part of it is a forgetfulness about um Aristotle talks about, you know, wor- there's work and then there's amusement and then there's leisure, these three spheres um, and it, work and amusement have taken up all the oxygen. And so we work, we're, we're on and we're engaged and we're, we're, we're doing some taxing work. And, and at the end of the day, we just want to relax and to unwind. And there's a whole um, economy and culture of amusement that's ready to welcome us into uh, the state of, of just complete relaxation uh, where we don't have to focus um, and they tend to play off each other. So the work is quite draining and exhausting, and the amusement just gives us a rest. And Aristotle talks about, you know, we need we need amusement like we need medicine, you know, to to kind of re- restore us. Um, but like a medicine, um, it can it can do harm if if, if there's too much of it. And so um, the the third sphere is is leisure, and it's not um, it's not characterized by the the passivity of amusement and. In the book, I look at actually David Foster Wallace's um, essay uh, on a cruise. He goes on a cruise to experience what is a, kind of a signature capstone amusement experience in, in in Western culture, where you get everything. You get gambling and pools and and you know buffets and everything is at your fingertips. And he describes the experience as as really what it's tending towards is you just want to be completely anesthetized, where your agency is completely, you just don't have to worry about your agency. You don't have to do anything. You can just completely and utterly relax. And he sees sort of the trajectory of that is we're just being kind of, you know, it's the soma in the brave new world, just completely anesthetized by the amusement. And we all, you know, I think can identify with that at a smaller level, coming home, especially with our devices and just the amusement we get from scrolling uh, all kinds of uh, visual media. It's just a low hanging fruit of, of, of finding relaxation and amusement. So contrasting work where we have to be engaged, attentive and on, and then amusement, which, which tends towards this passivity, uh, the, the kind of leisure that Aristotle talks about and Aquinas picks up on. And then, and more recently, Joseph Pieper, Leisure is not, it's not, it's not the active of work. It's not the passive of amusement. It's this active passive state of being in the world. 
And I think, you know, we've we've forgotten that we've lost sight of that. Uh, and I think there's, you know, it's interesting that 100 years ago, if you looked at the vision of education in the United States, the cultivation of leisure was one of the, the aims. Um, and it wasn't, you know, cultivating hobbies, you know, like, you know, doing arts and crafts. It was actually bringing a spirit of leisure uh, to chemistry, history and music, uh, a way of entering into these fields of study so that you experience them as as intrinsically interesting and worthwhile, not just as means for employment in the world. And it is it is amazing that that was actually a vision for education. Um, in the United States, there's nothing like that in our international discourse in education. I mean, it's, it tends to be uh, just the hyper pragmatic. We need to we need to get this education for jobs and work in the world. And so there's just a forgetfulness about this other way of being in the world. And it's just sort of etched into the the, the standards and, and practices of, of education. Um, the only space of leisure in, in a U.S. context is maybe arguing over extending the lunch period a little bit or giving a little bit more time for physical education. Um, but this idea of, of, of cultivation of leisure or, or that your your subjects could be, you know, spaces where the experience of leisure is is enacted is is just not there. And so I, I'm you know, there's a lot more to why we've gotten to where we are. But I think I think part of it is just, you know, there, there, there are strong economic capitalistic interests that want to um, remove leisure from the educational world and let the economy take care of our our, our mood states. And so, um, you know, being kind of thoughtful consumers that are aware of how our boredom states can, you know, drive us into, into areas or, or purchases that are just completely not helpful for our flourishing. I, I think, you know, there's in some ways um, uh, some interest in there. We don't actually want students to know these things because it will change the way they, they, they live and, and consume in the world. So let me pause there, Adrian. One of the most compelling arguments that you bring in the book is um, where you explain how we have very much narrowed, let's say, the scope of education towards educating reason and lost the, uh, let's say, education of uh, the other aspects, right? Um, both we lost in the intellect as, as a focus, and I think we, we lost practical wisdom, right? Because so we, we kind of are left on a limb there, right? Uh, literally, uh, with a very narrow uh, notion of reason. And and I, if if I may, uh, I want to cite uh, a passage uh, on page seventy seven, which where you explain this very important distinction between in, intellectus and reason. Uh, so it's page 77, and you say, for Pieper and for Aristotle and Aquinas before him, intellectus is our intuitive faculty, ratio is our discursive faculty, it is the ego applying itself to understand and make sense of the world. Ratio is a tool we employ for analytical purposes. Intellectus, however, is a disposition of the mind to receive a gift. With ratio, the self achieves understanding. With intellectus, the self receives illumination. This recalls the connection between worship and leisure that Wallace notes. Simon Vale describes the intellectus movement this way. May I disappear in order that those things that I see may become perfect in their beauty from the very fact that they are no longer things that I see. Uh, and you explain how Kant is very much part of this. 
reduction to use of of uh, of this broadness to something rather narrow right and um and it is clear right in in our educational policy and practice today how how more and more we we reduced everything to a very poor and and bare bones understanding of reason if even that right um yeah, I, 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 that distinction that Peeper really draws draws out, I think, is 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 really key. And um, and I, I try to bring in some examples because it can sound somewhat abstract. So ratio, the sort of the active discursive mind that is making distinctions and um, trying to, you know, part of what the the ratio critical mind is trying to do is it's trying to name and and um, own things in a way. You know, if I understand something and I can identify it, um, whereas intellectus is is um, it's not a grasping into uh, ratio type uh, activity. It's really, uh, I like the word receptive, where you're you're open to something and seeing something. Um, you know, and, it, I, I, and, it, and it's also related to a a, a, a deep attendant attentiveness as contemplation, right? Theoria, right? So yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, some simple examples. Uh, you know, when we think about very mundane activities that we're we're engaged in, uh, I think about it in the context of of learning something. Um, you know, a teacher can say, you know, a student might might ask, why 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 are we learning this? And the teacher could point to, well, it's state standards. It's going to be on the test. All these sort of extrinsic, you know, reasons or or, or directives or carrots or sticks. But but ultimately, most importantly, you want to say because. We desire to know. It's you know, Aristotle said human beings desire to know. We want to know the stars not just as a, a possible fuel source someday, but just because contemplation uh, is is part of the, the the flourishing and joy of a human being. Just enjoying the intrinsic value of of what it is you're engaged in. And oftentimes in the school context, where students are studying music and sports, they they lose sight of of just enjoying the very thing they're doing, and and, and that that. That's kind of a receptive move where you're you're trying to get good at something, but at the same time you want to to be enjoying it and savoring it, um, and that's what gets lost uh, in learning and 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 so many of different contexts. Um, when you look at literally the verbs and educational standards, the verbs are you know critique, analyze, dissect, um, <clears throat> measure. Verbs like contemplate, savor, enjoy, you know, the, the, the more affective ways that we engage with the world, the, the sheer delight, um, those verbs just aren't in the language, uh, educational standards, outcomes. And so in terms of what, what brains are, are actually being guided or directed to do, uh, the verbs we might associate with contemplation and leisure are just, just not even on the, on the map. Um and we see that on our syllabi, right? I, I, I joke with students as well. Uh, I get called in if my learning outcomes are not measurable, right? So uh, it's uh, an obsessive yep. quantification. Yep. And is this where does this come from? Is this because the business model has become so pervasive in all aspects of our lives, and then everything has to be measured? Yeah, I think I think that's been a huge uh, influence in shaping how we devise educational experiences, where you have to have clear, measurable outcomes and then assessments that track to those outcomes. I, I think the other part of it is, you know, perhaps you teach. You said you teach the humanities, and so let's say you're teaching, you know, you're teaching Dostoevsky, and um, 
you could set up some tests where you measure their knowledge of the brothers Karamazov. But <clears throat> I think teachers of of literature or poetry or, or even chemistry or biology, um, I think what they aspire for most is that the students will come to to like, maybe even love. To love, right? To love and 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 loving and liking are, are these are hard things to measure, right? Yeah. Um, we're we're talking about being kind of moved uh, in a in a deep way by the by the subject by the content, and so it's hard to measure a. B. The other thing is it, there's also some normativity and 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 saying to a student, you know, students who say, well, I just don't like literature, uh, you know, I don't ever say this, but a farmer thinks, you know, that's um, I think it was um, Mark Edmondson had a he's a professor at, at Virginia. He had a question on his final exam, and and, and the question was name two texts that you did not like this semester that we read. And then the second question was, what does that reveal? What deficiencies does that reveal about your character? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I bring that example up, which is to say that, you know, as, as, as teachers and professors, we're trying to guide the hearts and desires of our students to, to these beautiful, beautiful things. And, and we're saying, you know, these things are, are, are intrinsically valuable. You should actually, you should like them. You should maybe even love them. And if you don't, um, you know, we can retreat into everybody has their own subjective take on these different things. And I think what happens is we we lose intrinsic value. We lose this idea that, no, there are some things that are just intrinsically value valuable. And if, if I don't like them, maybe that's a deficiency in me rather than, oh, that's just my particular way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, as, as I read the book, the theme of love uh, appears and then disappears. It's yeah. it's. It, it seems to be very important for you, and you end the book uh, with that wonderful story about your grandmother and how. Uh, and and I, I, I've quote. I, I, uh, it said you. You says the ground of leisure is love. Ultimately, it is love that sustains and supports leisure, that provides the patience and vision needed to endure even the bleakest of circumstances. This is hardly a secret. Most people can think of instances in their lives that exemplify this truth. And uh, this theme is not necessarily that developed in the book, right? And it it, it seems because there, it seems to me there are two trajectories. One is Tertullian, and they don't do love. The Greeks. I mean, you have Plato where. You have the plate, the love side of Plato, but this this side, this other trajectory comes more from a Christian yeah. uh, perspective. Uh, can you explain that mm. passage a little bit and how you see, let's say, the theme of love uh, coming mm. together uh, uh, with with the, the theme of contemplation, right? Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. And you're right that it's not it's it's underdeveloped. I mean, I, I kind of ended there and realized I was raising some questions that that I did not have the space or time to fully address and answer. So um, one one reader actually brought this up at a at a conference and said, you know, you bring this up and kind of end on it. Um, you know, I was obviously drawn the story of thinking about being with my grandmother in a nursing home. Uh, these are spaces that I find quite boring, you know, just sort of a, every room is there's a, there's a TV that's just seems to be running all the time. And the show, I remember the price is right was on, which to me is just part of this boredom avoidance of modernity. Let's just, you know, bid on the value of, of goods for our homes. Um, and so it was just for me as a 25 year old, just kind of a boring space. And yet I was there with my grandmother in her last days and I loved her. I love my grandmother. Um, 
really a remarkable person and just someone who loved me. And it just seemed like the force of love, the power of love was, was just this incredible resource to contend with uh, kind of a bleak, tedious space. Um, and, you know, I was also thinking with Kierkegaard, you know, Kierkegaard in either or the main character, this is his first, you know, pseudonymous authorship is, is, is a, is a character that's just fraught with boredom, poet A, and trying to figure out how to live a life that is filled with engaging, interesting activity and, and stuff. And so his struggle is, is between essentially life is boring. How do I make it interesting? How do I keep it interesting? How do I sustain that? Um, and ultimately, you know, he's kind of a sad and I would say pathetic character and one that I, you know, sadly can resonate with uh, in day-to-day -day life where he's, where he's trying to find interesting things, interesting clips. Let's let's watch the next, you know, comedic clip that, that comes out. And he talks about the board mind is always sort of trying to just live within that dialectic, the interesting and the boring and trying to avoid one. Um, this other way of being in the world is is in, infused with love. And, and so rather than seeing the world as as just one occasion of boredom after another, uh, it sees the world as this infinite series of occasions where love can be can be enacted and brought into the world. And um, and so I, that just strikes me as 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 a much richer mm. uh, way to be in the world. And how does that can, how does that relate to leisure? I think it I think it relates to to leisure because it's coming back to our capacity for this uh, deep kind of attention where we're we're in this active, passive, receptive space mm -hmm. or attending to to what's in front of us. Um, and most importantly, to the to people uh, that we mm -hmm. are encountering in our in our lives. And so, Adrian, it's not it's not fully developed, but I think Kierkegaard is pointing to a, a, a much deeper kind of resource mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. sustains it. And and also, you know, with Aristotle, the, the critique there is there's sort of this elitist contemplation. I'm I'm doing mm -hmm. I'm doing leisure when I'm when I'm doing philosophy mm -hmm. and not the pedestrian stuff. Uh, and 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 love opens up the 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 leisure can infuse the very mundane ordinary stuff. So in doing the dishes a certain way for my family, for my partner, uh, I'm entering into a space of of, of loving leisure. Uh, and I don't think Aristotle would ever imagine, and I do make arguments for very mundane things, going for a walk, you know, cleaning as as possibilities for a kind of of leisurely engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I think it opens up just a much broader expanse of space and a much more let's say realistic uh, re retrieval or rediscovery of of the culture of leisure um through these um quote unquote mundane <laughs> practices rather than through the top-down tradition of contemplation right whereas so i'm engaging in contemplation right which yeah. kind of you know which we we see this um, artificial uh, attitude a little bit in the culture of mindfulness, where it's become yeah. this Mac mindfulness, where everything yeah. is as a panacea to all our problems. But it, it's it's a very artificial enterprise because it, there's there's no organicity to it. I mean, for some it is, but for where it has become itself commodified, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, please. If you have. Oh no, I was just thinking of Benedict. You know, in creating, you know, in the seventh century, you know, mm -hmm. rule was was really creating um, uh, a community of leisure uh, that would be incarnated in 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 the transcribing of of 
of you know the Book of Job or or, or Plato's Republic, as monks were, were doing, as well as washing dishes and doing laundry and doing gardening. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. whole range of activities were were enactments of, of leisure, and 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 there wasn't the kind of the hierarchy. I mean, Aristotle's this this clear hierarchy of 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 intellectual you know versus you know non intellectual activities, and, and and Benedict sort of levels levels that out, and I think in, I think in a very human and wonderful way mm-hmm. yeah actually i i there is a quote i got from the book to this point uh that this is where a spirit of study uh, it's on page 107 this is where a spirit of study brought to simple mundane practices reading a book or washing dishes is especially helpful the cure for monkey mind in a monastic tradition does not involve injunctions to do more thinking more reflecting or more praying but manual labor or simplistic um, repetitive prayers that require minimal ra- ratio concentration mm-hmm. within this the epiphany cited a spirit of grace is also pervasive and this brings me to uh, the three things that you the three directives for cultivating the art of leisure mm-hmm. becoming an apprentice cultivating a spirit of study uh, and contemplating or remembering our epiphany so you 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 offer three um, remedies or three possible um, uh, directives as you call them can you speak about each in part because i think they're very useful uh, in fact they're practical yeah so you know when you think about um someone who becomes you know, a, a, a master dentist or physician, or they, they acquire, you know, sort of this advanced skill knowledge. And, and, you know, when you go into medicine, you're, you're a resident, which is to say you're apprenticed under a master and you're learning, you're learning the craft. Um, in a similar way, I think to, to understand how to, how to embody leisure, um, it, it, you need, you need to be an apprentice because, um, we don't, we don't, you know, we, we have to learn from people who actually are doing this and and begin to, you know, because a lot of these these activities, I mean, I had a friend who invited me to go birding a few years ago and uh, and that just didn't sound very interesting. My bored mind was like, you know, three hours of, of looking at birds. And I really needed to, to trust this friend who I regard as a wise, thoughtful person uh, and to trust that he knows something about an experience that I, as, as an outsider, cannot fully grasp or understand. Alistair McIntyre talks about within a practice, there are intrinsic goods. These are the things that make these practices rich and worthwhile when you're playing chess. Uh, From an outsider, it might look like a kind of a dull game. But once you get inside the practice, you you start to understand these intrinsic goods. And that's where an apprentice needs. uh, You need to apprentice yourself to someone who's who's more expert and and knows firsthand the intrinsic goods. And you need to trust and, and just stay with me for a while. You will come to see why this is a rich and wonderful, meaningful practice. And so uh, the apprenticeship is just needing, we need, we need guides that, that help us experience these, these, these activities. Um, study, you know, I'm contrasting study, uh, kind of the classical understanding of study versus curiosity. And, and um, the curiosity that Augustine speaks about is sort of the roving mind that is looking for spectacle. Um, it, 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 you know, he talks about his friend uh, who, who's brought to the gladiator fights and refuses to see, closes his eyes and plugs his ears. And 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 then here's the roar of the crowd in his eyes. He can't resist. And, and he's hooked. He can no longer not see 
you know, the spectacle of gladiator violence. And he goes back and back and back. And uh, and so our curious minds, um, curiosity can seem like what's wrong with curiosity. And but we tend to be curious about things that um, get us away from ourselves, curious about gossip, um, you know, the lives of others. Uh, uh, the news is a, a, just a, a hive of curiosities, you know hearing about violence done to this person or that person there's just a, a trove of stories and the news is always breaking and so it's always sort of arresting our curious mind um study by contrast is is setting ourselves up to attend to one thing and to stay with it for a sustained period of time so to be studious is to um remove distractions and to give yourself the space to just be engaged with with one thing or maybe you know sometimes i think two things you can fold laundry um, mm -hmm. and listen to music i mean just those two things um, mm -hmm. which, which also is uh, uh corroborated by psychology right i forget the name of the uh great hungarian psychologist what he calls flow right uh, michali yep. <laughs> right exactly and 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 you don't get into flow state uh, unless you're giving yourself um, the 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 time to to be with one thing for for a sustained period of time, and so apprenticeship study, and then by epiphany, I'm I'm referring to those experiences. Um, thinking about it in the context of the humanities, where you're reading uh, a book and there's a certain passage that you just find utterly riveting, and and it grips you, and you all of a sudden you realize, ah, this is why you know this poem or this story is, is, is held in such high regard, it, you know, more than I read the text, the text is reading me right now, or it could be, um, you know, uh, an experience, uh, going for a walk and, and, you know, um, um, Oh, uh, Iris Murdoch, you know, was in her office and, uh, really kind of in a bad mood and agitated. I think someone had uh, some slight to her reputation, you know, this great writer philosopher. Um, and she glanced out her window and there was, um, a kestrel uh i didn't really understand what a kestrel was so it's it's a you know i don't know if you know what a kestrel is but imagine a hawk about 30 feet up in the air hovering and these are these are hawks that literally hover and she's just completely uh struck by it and um and all of these sort of thoughts and anxieties or, or, or resentments just sort of melt away and it's just her and the kestrel and so it's this moment of epiphany where where she sees something in the world that is just beautiful, this saturated phenomena that just just grabs her heart and mind. Um, and so needing to remember those because we forget those and and can kind of get uh, caught up in in the quagmire of day to day life. But even as teachers, you know, we're drawn to these fields of study because because they are, you know, as Jean Luc Marion would say, these are saturated phenomena that just are just overwhelming with 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 riches. And so needing to recall that um, when we have an epiphany, one thing I, I, I argue in the book is that to have an epiphany is actually to have this sort of quintessential experience of leisure where the, where the, the intrinsic goodness of something in the world just, just is, is revealed to you and you see it. And so, so those are the three directives. These are, are not, it's not a recipe. It's not, you do a, B and C and voila. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where I think there's a giftedness to leisure. It's not something we can, commodify the way we can amusement life experiences mm -hmm. and it, it's not something we can produce right i think and that's a great point and, and may, i think I, now as you speak i understand your because you also bring in grace mm -hmm. right this as you say this 
learning to see the giftedness, the gift, the gift, to use Marion again, yeah. uh, of uh, the gift aspect of reality, which again, we have, uh, we, we have a very hard time receiving because we're so focused on producing and efficiency and results right yeah. and so the point of not making it programmatic is is crucial because otherwise we will produce pleasure right which right uh, yeah. we will uh, it will become again something produced yeah. and uh, we see i mean maybe we see that uh, too much in in academic in academia, right? Where we're we're both academics, and we see how it's an entire industry now. It's very hard to avoid it. You have to produce, even right. And yeah, and was it Merrick McIntyre talks about the corruption of these practices by the the institutions that are? I mean, you know, hospitals corrupting the practice of medicine. You know, with all the forces. Sort of the the profit incentive, the you know narrowing the time when you can meet with a patient so that you can you know and so the practice itself of of experiencing poetry or or art or painting uh, as an experience of leisure within the within the academy gets corrupted by our need to you know be writing things about this, getting published, advancing, and so on. And so yeah, it it it, it is a it it you know I do talk about the cultivation of leisure as a discipline. It requires um, you know, you need you need friends that are going to help hold you to account um, and, you know, just sort of track the ways that we can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here on a trip and it's so easy to keep working constantly, you know, with with our our hyper connectivity. And so this could be a space of leisure, but it can also be easily, you know, just more of the work amusement treadmill. Hmm. Um, what are you working next? Uh what is your next project, Kevin? Is it? Um, I, you know, I, I'm just beginning to write or think about writing something on uh, joy, actually, cultivation of joy. Okay. Um, but it's just in the early, early stage. Yeah. It's another one of these topics that there's the quality of grace and gift there. There's there's some psychology on the phenomena experience of joy. It draws on, you know, there's a lot of different disciplines that you can bring into the conversation. So actually with, with a couple of friends, we've been talking about trying to to do something uh, related to that. The, yeah. the other side project I was thinking about, uh, the book is, it's been interesting to see where it's gotten traction. Um, and it, you know, it's more of an academic type book, but I think, you know, uh, a book that a more popular kind of simpler book I think would 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 be helpful because I, I meet a lot of parents um that contend with this with their children and I have children and um and are, are really wanting very practical guidance uh and directives. And so I've thought about giving some thought to that. The other space where, you know, uh, I mentioned my grandmother being in a nursing home, but the elderly, the struggle with boredom in retirement and in, you know, in in, in nursing homes. I think is far more profound than we realize. And so thinking about that community and that stage of life for how do we contend well with this? Um, I mean, I see a lot of, you know, my own family, you know, people playing Candy Crush in solitaire and watching either CNN or Fox, depending upon their, their political persuasion. And so there's this avoidance of boredom and and just needing, you know, all of us needing wisdom for how to contend well with it. So thinking about a project that would be, um, um, more public facing uh, on this on this topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for your time. Wonderful talking to you. I appreciate you. You're carefully reading the book and bringing in quotes. It's always very humbling as, as, a, as, a, as a new author to, to have that experience. So thank you. Okay.